0: Good morning. 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. 2nd Peter reads like this divine preparation manual for the 1st century church to prepare them for the uncertain days ahead. This is so applicable to where we stand as a church culture today. God is preparing his people. I welcome you to the teaching series, Prepared, our study in Second Peter. God moved on the author's heart that when chapter 2 opened, the words that God gave him read like a warning. Now, the initial warning that we discovered in chapter 2, which helps us to be prepared, was a warning against False voices that speak into our lives misleading us. The second warning that was recognized in chapter 2 was a warning against the destruction of false beliefs. It was Bible scholar Norman Hillier who observed in this text that the readers of the author, Peter were very vexed with the sinister mistreatment that the false teachers were bringing into the church. So to the point that perhaps they were crying out to God, when will this be over? When will this end? Perhaps you have said that in your heart before. God, when will this negative experience end? Well, if you've said this, you're in good company. Barnard Research posed a question. If you could ask God one thing, knowing that He would answer you immediately, what would be that one question? Most everyone surveyed stated this question, Why does evil continue to happen? Well, likely that was on the hearts of the readership of Peter when God led him to write these words because they were surrounded with all types of negative influence from these false voices and false beliefs that continue to to enter into the church and penetrate the lives of the followers of Jesus, and so what an incredible opportunity we have today to read an incredible response Peter made in the face of this angst that was caused by the by the false voices and the false belief. Peter made a very pastoral response to those hearts who were crying out, when will this be over? When can this get better? And his very pastoral response is verse 9. Because although Peter could not make sense of all the negative, he gave the ultimate truth. And in verse 9, the truth is, God knows how to rescue the godly while holding the ungodly under his judgment. God knows how to rescue the godly. The term godly here doesn't reflect someone who's simply mimicking godly characteristics. Many of us think that would be the meaning of the term. But in the scriptures, the term godly actually references someone who is walking in fellowship with God and walking after God. Enoch was called godly because he truly walked with God. There was a fellowship that he had. The idea of godly references a heart that is devoted. And we know from the teaching of scripture that true fellowship with God can only come through Jesus Christ and our faith in him. So when Peter wrote in verse 9, God knows how to rescue the godly. The reference to godly is to the followers of Christ, those who have their faith in Christ. And so Peter offers incredible encouragement in the face of error, in the face of, of these false influences that were penetrating the church. And, and the encouragement was, was twofold. God knows how to, to rescue you. If you belong to him through your faith in Christ, God knows how to care for you while at the same time holding the unrighteous under judgment. So, for this moment today, let's truly live in verse 9. Verse 9 points back and points forward. Verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 2 points back to verses 4 through 8, demonstrating God's judgment against the unrighteous. Verse 9 then points forward to specific, detailed, detailed, unnerving, negative characteristics of the false teachers that actually become warnings to those who truly desire to follow Jesus. And so verse 9 points back to judgment against the false teachers and then forward to warnings that came from those judgments. And so today, for this moment, let's allow God's word to have its full effect in our lives. And so our time in God's word is identified in two ways. We're going to look back at the judgment God brought against the ungodly, and then we will look forward to the end of the chapter as specific warnings that come from those judgments. And so I hope that you're encouraged in this journey we take in chapter two. So uh, let's first look at the judgments that God brought against the false teachers, the ungodly, those false voices who were bringing such harm to the church and there are three examples of god's judgments i'm going to share these examples with you these will later become warnings for you and for me as we desire to continue to follow christ we do not want to fall under such influence being described here so we'll see these as warnings in just a moment but first let's look at god's judgment against the ungodly there are three examples of this judgment example number one verse four for god did not spare the angels When they sinned. This is an amazing, riveting story from the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Do not allow the shock of Peter's example uh, to be dismissed in our modern readership. For here, when we see in verse 4, God did not spare the angels. We are referencing a text in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 6. That describes how how God brought judgment against angels who who sinned with mankind. Now, there are those who would look at that historic passage in Genesis and assume that angels were not intended, but actually the sons of Zeth. But if you uh, understand from 2 Peter and from Jude that both passages point back to this story and reference angels, we understand that that God brought intensive, fierce judgment against those celestial beings. So if God has done that, if he has brought judgment to those angels who in their rebellion fell, then how much more is God going to bring judgment against those false teachers that have come against the church? And so that's the first example of God's judgment. He judged the angels who fell. He will also judge those who are ungodly, those false teachers. Second example. Verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world. He He preserved Noah and his family, but God did not even spare the ancient world. We see this in verse 5. Now this references again the history of scripture. Genesis chapter 6 and 7, the earth's flood when the entire world was destroyed, save Noah and his his family. So if God did not spare the world when it was in the depth of wickedness, he will not spare those false teachers, but will judge them, these teachers, these people of error who were unrepentant and were bringing damage to the church. And so that's the second example. Now here's the third example of these three notorious stories from the Old Testament, from biblical history. The third example is in verse six through verse eight. The message is God did not spare that city of Sodom and Gomorrah, that historic location on a peninsula in the Dead Sea that referenced a real event. God did not withhold his judgment against that wicked ancient city. But you'll notice here also in verses 6-8 through that God spared Lot. Lot was considered righteous, just as Noah and his family were considered righteous. And so in these three examples of God's pronounced and absolute judgment, we see in examples 2 and 3 that in that judgment, God was also sparing those lives who were truly seeking him. So we have three examples of God's judgment. The example of his judgment against the celestial beings, the angels, uh, judgment against the ancient world uh, during the flood, and judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the common denominator is very simple. In, in literature, there is a form of writing known as the protesis and the apodosis. The protasis references the, the, the first statement here. The, the, the protasis is the if. If God did this. And then the hypothesis, the completion of that, is the then statement. Uh, this becomes uh, an, an, an incredibly conditional form of, of writing that God gave in such perfect fashion to, to Peter to convey to you and to me. That, that there is first this if clause. If God did not spare the angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, if he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, Now from that if we know the hypothesis, we know the then, then he will also know how to hold those who are presently ungodly under punishment. But there's something really unique in what the literary mind calls the hypothesis, this completion of the if then clause. The the uniqueness, and, and hang with this, this is really, really powerful. The uniqueness lies in that inclusion in verse nine, not just God will, judge the unrighteous if he judged those unrighteous in biblical history he will judge those today who are unrighteous but there's something included in the second half of this, of this conditional sentence or paragraph the second half includes not just he will judge those unrighteous today but he will preserve the godly he will rescue he will care for those who are his and so our first uh, engagement with this, with this incredible message, uh, from 2 Peter chapter 2, involves our engagement with those three stories, so three examples of God's judgment, which not only pronounces judgment, but that he also cares for his own in the, in the midst of his judgment. And what a powerful reminder this becomes of, of this present moment in the life of the church where God cares for his own. Even, even while he's bringing judgment against those who have truly denied him. So we've looked at the three examples of, of God's judgment. And we know that God judges sin. And we know that according to the scripture that, that God has, has placed the judgment of sin on Christ when Christ died on the cross. So that if our faith is in Jesus, we're, we're no longer under his condemnation and his judgment. We're, we're under his grace. And we know that is the truth, and that becomes the identity of the phrase, God knows how to rescue the godly. Those who are truly His, God cares for, even in the midst of His judgment, against those who are ungodly and those who are bringing destruction against the church. So we've, we've looked at God's judgment against the unrighteous. Uh, now we move to the, to the second expression of how we're engaging with these truths. Now we look at the three warnings. That God brings. The, 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 the judgment of God takes the form of warnings as as God's very own followers of Christ. Hear how the scripture describes the, the the unbelievable darkness of the character of those who are false teachers, and how we not only see them as appraisals of, of wickedness, but how they become warnings so that we would not fall under their influence, so that we would not fall. On the same path. So here are the three warnings warnings against a rebellious heart, warning against false loves, and warning against deception. The false teachers were judged for these three damaging influences their rebellious heart against God, their false love, or you might as well literally express their lust, and then their deception. They were judged at these points, and now these. Dark characteristics become warnings so that you and I will avoid such influence. So let's look at each of these warnings uh, very quickly. The first warning, a rebellious heart. We pick up in verse 10. Uh, Those who were being punished, especially verse 10, those who indulged in corrupt desires and those who despise authority. Uh, The term here authority is singular, meaning one Presence of authority. But the very next statement in verse 10, these hearts that were corrupt and despised authority, they were daring, self-willed, and they did not tremble when they reviled against angelic majesties. Well, when you use this singular word authority in the same text of angelic majesties, you're referencing what can be called heaven's hierarchy or a celestial hierarchy, meaning every part of that which is supernaturally God. So these rivalers, these Errorist, those who were false teachers were so depraved in their hearts that they were not simply described as someone who had a rebellious tendency but in their hearts they rebelled against God and every aspect of of heaven that that expresses God they had such a deep sense of rebellion in their own lives that that their rebellion could only be described as as reviling against the authority of all celestial beings, the whole hierarchy of heaven, every facet of the supernatural became a point whereas these dark characteristics, uh, these dark lives rebelled. They rebelled against everything that had to do with God. Uh, Look at verse 11. Whereas angels are greater than even these teachers of error in might and power, and they did not revile in judgment against them before the lord so although the the angelic beings are are described here as being more powerful than these false teachers and although they didn't revile them in judgment before the lord that was not their role these false teachers actually reviled them in their obstinance and rebellion and in their and their heinous attitude against any aspect of that which was supernatural of god so their rebellion was well noted verse 12 becomes probably one of the most scathing critiques against a corrupt heart. Listen to verse 12. But these, these false teachers, they were like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of their own instinct, even as wild creatures should be captured and killed. So that instinct, uncontrolled urge describes these false teachers who just like those wild animals will end up in complete destruction. This becomes the message of verse 12. Again, signifying the utter rebellion of the hearts of these false teachers. This was one point of God's judgment against them. And this becomes a warning for you and for me that we would be careful not to have any inclination in our lives that could in any way signify that we are developing an attitude or a heart or an action against God. For that is the first step toward a rebellious heart oh we must be so so careful here joseph stalin uh, an infamous name in history actually early in his life developed a desire to attend a seminary for some form of ecumenical ministry work. I find this amazing. But soon his heart turned from that, he developed a a hatred for all religion. Lenin saw this as admirable and and brought him into an office. And and fast-forwarding to the end of his life, it, it was said in his biography that Joseph Stalin, upon his deathbed, raised his hand to heaven. Once a person that indicated that he had a desire... to to actually be in some form of ministry, at the end of his life, raised his hand to heaven and clenched his fist in rebellion. I'll tell you, when we begin to live for self, when we begin to hate our brother, when we begin to develop those acts and attitudes in our lives that are totally not of Christ, we put our toes on that line that, that defines a rebellious heart. We need to follow as Paul advised in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine your heart. Oh dear friend, examine your heart. Hear this warning against a rebellious heart, to make certain that there is no part of your life that is forgetting God. In Deuteronomy, the Bible reminds us not to forget our God by ignoring his commandments. And we think sometimes not obeying God is, is unseen and, and doesn't cause many problems in our lives. But when we choose not to obey God's leading in our lives, it becomes a form of disobedience that can, that can lead to rebellion. Oh, hear the warning against a rebellious heart. And there's a second warning. The second warning is against false love. So we pick up in verse 13, and this is what we read. Again, the, this passage is seamless as the author describes the corruptness and darkness of the hearts of the false teachers. Verse 13, Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they actually count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, revealing in their deceptions how corrupt their hearts are, even as they carouse with you. Now, this message in verse 13 uh, gives us a second warning. The warning... Uh, against false love. This continues all the way through verse 16. Verse 13 reminds us that these false teachers were actually reveling in the daytime. They were reveling in their corrupt deceptive hearts, even as they were carousing or associating with the church. The author writes, even while they were carousing with you, meaning the church, this idea of carousing can actually indicate some form of of a banquet or a feast, some even say that it correlates to the to the love feast celebrated in the early church that actually incorporated the Eucharist or the Lord's supper. Now we can't be for certain in this, but we do know that the the uh, the assessment is is really damaging. Uh, Peter writes, "These evil hearts." are with you, and they act like all things are okay. But when they're not with you, even in broad daylight, they're reveling in their sins. Verse 13 indicates the first expression of a false love, a love for the former life. These individuals pretended to engage with the church, but in their past sins, they could not lose love for those desires that were controlling their lives then. And so because there was no real change, they continued in those past loves and those past affections. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, Having eyes full of adultery that never ceases from sin, they are enticing unstable souls, having their own hearts trained in greed. At the end of verse 14, it's as if the author becomes so exasperated, he just shouts out, Accursed children indicating that these false teachers had eyes full of adultery, meaning that their hearts with greed always desired that which God had boundaried off from them. This becomes a spirit of adultery. that They had a love for the forbidden. Not only did they have a love for their past affections, they had a love for, for that which God said, don't pursue. Hence, their false love were actually uh, fleshly lusts. So the second form of the false love is that they, they had a, a love for that which God said no, that which was forbidden. Uh, verse 15, forsaken the right way, they went the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke uh, for his own transgressions. Uh, for, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of man restrained his madness. Now we know that incredible story from Numbers 22 through 24. Balaam was so seduced by personal gain from his own acts of unrighteousness that it took the voice of a donkey to remind him that which mattered the most. And, and love this story in the Old Testament, but here uh, this story becomes a very sad commentary to those faults. Teachers, uh, they they had a love for self-gain. This drove Balaam, a false prophet from the Old Testament. This drives the hearts of those who have fallen to false loves, a love for, for self-gain at any cost. So here were three expressions of their, of their false love. Verse 13, they had a love for former things. Verse 14, uh, they had a love for forbidden things. Verse 15, uh, they had a love for personal things, for self Gain. Oh, be careful of this false love that scripture actually indicates as lust. Author and pastor Paul Tripp defined such fleshly lust in the following ways. Lust is that which causes a man or a woman to reach out and snatch from the hand of God a part of his creation and keep it for their own, even though it never belonged to them. And then Tripp writes this, this is a way that we deny God's existence and try to become God ourselves as we control that which our flesh craves. What a riveting, overwhelming, accurate definition of that false love, that fleshly lust that drove the false teachers, and it drives men today. This becomes a warning, a clear warning from a point that was a point of judgment for the false teachers became a point of warning for the church and for you and for me today, a warning against lust, against those false loves. Now, here's a final warning. We read from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, a description of deception. The final warning is a warning against deception now, let me show you three expressions of deception in this final passage of chapter two verse 17 they meaning false teachers are springs without water uh, they're mist driven by a storm an ancient travel a spring with uh, without water uh, paints a picture of, of a, a, a place of growing, vibrant vegetation. Perhaps a traveler would see this and assume in this oasis a deep well of water. But when they would try, the well would be empty. The, the greenery had not died just yet, but the well was already empty. This becomes the analogy of the false teachers. The author, led by God's hand, writes, oh, these, these false teachers were, they looked green, they, they looked vibrant, but oh, they were empty on the inside. They were mist, driven by a storm. There was just a little bit of wetness in the storm that might cause the ground some good, but because the storm was driving it, the moisture did no good. Again, this describes the superficiality of the words of the false teachers. We see this in verse 18. For speaking in arrogant words, they enticed by sensuality. The hook was their sophistry, their, their brilliant way of arguing and, and trying to impress. And then the bait on the hook was the, the carnal desires, that which pleases man. All these false teachers, they were like springs without water. They were like mist driven by a storm. Their words meant nothing. That's the definition. Our warning is against deception. We must be careful that our words are more than just words. If we say that we have a passion for Christ, that needs to be evident deep in our hearts. If we say we truly love our neighbor, that needs to be evident deep in our hearts and out in our actions. We need to be more than just lip service. The prophet announced from the Old Testament, God saying unto his own people, don't honor me with your lips, but, but with your life. And all the deception is first expressed in the lives of false teachers as, as empty words. Mere flattery of tongue to try to win a good reputation. That was one expression of their deception. Let me share with you another expression of their deception. Verse 19, they promised freedom while they themselves were captive. Slaves of corruption, the Bible describes them. You know you're a you're a slave to whatever has mastery over you, and for the false teachers, they were proclaiming this uh, pseudo freedom, this this freedom from an obligation to to the commands of God, this freedom from obligation to much of anything. They were actually presenting what I would call a false narrative of of neutrality, indifference, wherein they were convincing others that they did not have to be truly passionate completely about Jehovah or about the Christ, nor did they have to truly be overly passionate or entangled with their past lives. They could stay in this safe place of neutrality. That is false all throughout Scripture. What is denied is some safe place of indifference. That is a false narrative. The enemy will attempt to to uh, trip up everyone over in this in this life. The false narrative of, of indifference. In Revelation 3.16, uh, the, the message to the church was very simple. From the words of our Lord, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And, and nauseatingly, I spew you from my mouth. That lukewarmness defines Satan's lie that we can be indifferent or have some place of neutral. I know there are many who feel, I, I'm not. That passionate for the Lord maybe like I need to be, but, but, but I'm certainly not living in sin like I used to. I'm just going to be in this safe place. May I tell you that place does not exist. Scripture tells us we will either render our bodies as instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness. We will either be hot or cold. A place of indifference is a place where the enemy Satan has an opportunity to work in our lives and bring destruction. The second expression of deception was this message that you could have freedom as you would define it, freedom from the law, freedom from obligation, and you could be who you wanted to be. And Oh, dangerous was this truth. And this was a second expression of of deception. And there's a third expression of deception uh, from the... uh, a superficial words to a false sense of indifference. The third expression of of this deception was hypocrisy. Just blatant hypocrisy. Defined here more as apostasy, but the the defining measure of verses twenty through 20, 20 through twenty-two is indeed hypocrisy. Look at these words. Uh, verse 20 uh, they 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 escape defilement from the world by their knowledge of Christ. They have a working head knowledge of Jesus, so they were able to say no to some of those negative vices in the world. But if you look closely, according to verse 20, they were still entangled in the ways of the world, even though they professed their freedom from the things of the world. Verse 21, oh, it would be better that they had never known the way of righteousness than to claim that they know it and then fall from it and treat it as if following Jesus was was not vital and was not a passion of their heart. So what a dangerous place. And this hypocrisy actually revealed that these individuals really never knew Jesus. So it was more apostasy than hypocrisy. They had claimed to know him with their mind, but they fell away. Look at verse 21. Proof of this is the analogy of a dog returning to his vomit and a sow after being washed returning to the mire. These individuals claimed knowledge of Jesus, because they desired to be a part of this community that was just emerging in the first century, the church. But they desired the platform of the church for their own popularity and purpose. And as they proclaimed to have God's hand on their life, they were living according to the world, and and there was no passion for anything other than self and the things of the world. And even though they claimed to know Jesus, they easily returned to their to their lives that. Really, never left them. They professed to be changed, but they eventually returned, as a dog returns to vomit, as a sow returns to the mire. They returned back to living as, as their uh, corrupt hearts dictated. And the warning is a warning of deception. You may say, Pastor, I'd never go there. I, I know Jesus personally, well, be careful then, because obviously the Scripture teaches. He, that you're once you're saved and you belong to Christ, you always belong to Him. That's taught. That's Scripture. That's over and over again in the in the Bible. But but be careful that in your own lives, you don't miss something that you just simply suppress because you don't want to deal with it—a a past sin, something that you've not truly addressed in your life. Don't push it down and claim that things are okay, because that became the root of these who eventually were apostates. We, we, we need to give all of our lives totally and completely to Jesus Christ because he's Savior and Lord. Uh, I want to read a verse to you from 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. This is what we read. The one who keeps his commandments, meaning the one who truly follows Jesus, abides in him and Jesus in him. We know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Well, I love this reminder that, that we we truly, as we desire to, to have all of our lives surrendered to Christ, we truly abide in Him and, and He in us. There is no other way to avoid these warnings. And as we heed them, to revisit that phrase in verse 9, God knows how to rescue the godly from from temptation, that word godly again, referencing one who through Christ is in fellowship with God. And, and we must ask ourselves every every day, how am I pursuing my relationship with Christ? Do I truly desire Him over all other desires in this world? And if you feel like that you're stuck at that point, I truly know Jesus is who He says He is, but, but I don't want to return to the formal way of life. I feel stuck. Let me encourage you. With this, and and, and this also comes in the form of a of a warning. I I close with this story. Near Aurora, Colorado, there was a significant accident on the main highway, and so Google Maps began to redirect drivers uh, off the main highway down a bypass road so that they could avoid the wreck. and make their way, uh, particularly closer to the Denver airport. There were many travelers headed toward the airport. As, as one driver uh, said after being interviewed, uh, she began to see hundreds of cars going in the same direction that her computer-generated map was directing, so she followed. But what was not noted by the computer-generated map was that this bypass around the accident actually involved a short length of dirt road, and a recent rain had washed that dirt road out. So every driver that followed the crowd ended up stuck because they didn't pay attention to what was really in front of them. And so we need to be careful that we're not simply following the way that other people have walked. We need to make certain that we're not simply pretending or, or going through the motions of church life or of trying to uphold some label of Christianity. We, we truly need to keep our eyes on Jesus and not for a moment believe where the crowd is walking but to truly look at Christ and that becomes the answer for how we can no longer find ourselves stuck if we feel stuck in that moment of of wanting to move forward but we just seemingly can't oh the way that you move from being stuck is as a refresh surrender to the Christ to seek Jesus for who he is and and to surrender every part of your heart to him and to do that intentionally And that's our calling today We've seen God's judgment against the unrighteous and we've seen these warnings against those who would pretend to be Of Christ but are of not And our calling today as followers of Jesus is to hear the words of Christ when he said oh Do not be led away from temptation, but in prayer in prayer, uh, say no, and and don't be led by temptation. But 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 to keep that heart centered on Jesus Christ. So today, I, I ask you, I encourage you uh, to heed these warnings of, of of rebellious attitudes and and lustful thoughts and deceptive notions and actions and. Recommit your heart to Jesus Christ. Let him have all of your mind and your heart and your affections and truly center on him. I believe this is why 2 Peter chapter 2, like many other places in the Bible, gave us such riveting, powerful warnings. And I pray that we'll heed those warnings today. I'd love to pray with you. Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us in your word. And God as we depart from this time of worship may we take your word with us and may we hear these warnings and, and and not give in to those tendencies that are all around us but Father may we truly at this very moment ask you to renew our faith and our love for you and for Christ and for your truth and your word and your church so that we're truly walking in the way that you desire living as you've called us and not fabricating some thought of goodness and and, and, and living in the whims and in the desires of the world. Father, help us to, to truly seek you. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for this community. Although virtually we, we sense the community, we thank you for bringing us together. And we commit these days ahead to you in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Love you a lot. If God's spoken to your heart today, There's a a website location right now. You can reach out and use that. We'll be right in touch with you. We are so glad you're a part of this time of worship. Church family, friends, followers of Christ, do not be discouraged. God knows how to rescue His own while holding the ungodly under judgment. Trust Him. Walk by faith in Jesus Christ today. Love you a lot. God bless.